The power of memory, words, and language. Who are we? And what do we lose of ourselves when the words we speak no longer mean what they were intended to say? What do we lose if we aren't who we are? On the next Janice Adams Show, two men, fathers, on the legacies passed to them and what they now pass on. Matt Mixon, filmmaker, co-executive producer of The Janice Adams Show, African-American, city-born and bred, recalls childhood summers on the family farm. Every child in America should have at least one summer on a working farm. It's such a great part of growing up. Dr. Neahit Graymorning, member of the Arapaho Nation, speaks to today's young. He First, the news. Trying to make it real compared to what? Today on the show, two men, fathers both, speak to the power of memory, words, and identity. As we began planning an episode on farming, my co-producer, Matt Mixon, African-American city boy, born and raised, filmmaker, broadcasting executive, found himself drawn back to his childhood summers on his family's ancestral farm in Mississippi. Here's Matt. You know, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was a city boy. But my grandmother, my big mama, as we called her, uh, lived in Macomb, Mississippi. And Macomb was the home of my father, where my dad had migrated north from when he was a very young man. My father had been a sharecropper. And I had several summers where I would go down to Mississippi and spend the entire summer with my grandmother on my uncle's farm. My grandmother was elderly, um, and her job was to sit on the front porch, and she would either be shelling peas or shucking corn or slicing okra. And um, my cousin Ronnie and I, Ronnie was a couple of years older than me, our jobs were various helping around the farm. And I saw a lot of things when I was there. Um, my uncle had some mules, and I remember the, the summer he got a tractor. That was a really big deal. There weren't a lot of power tools, um, as I remember the farm experience. Um, first, I want to say that I think every child in America should have at least one summer on a working farm. I just think it's such a great part of growing up. But... Um, the experience that I had was largely uh, helping around the farm. Um, my uncle worked very hard, and I remember getting up before light, and we, my cousin Ronnie and I both had chores. Um, one of my chores was to crawl underneath the house. Um, being a southern house, it was sitting up on, on brick pilings, and underneath the house, uh, many of the chickens would make their nests. And I had to go under there and collect eggs and then crawl out and take the eggs to my Aunt Ida. And she would start to make breakfast while we did the rest of our chores. Another of our chores was, uh, well, my cousin Ronnie helped with the milking, but I helped bring the cows in from the field. Um, there, I really wasn't much help because the cows were ready. They had this down to a routine they saw my uncle and they just started walking toward the barn. But it was all a process for me. And um, after we got the cows in and um, the eggs were in, my Aunt Ida would call us to breakfast and she would make these huge farm breakfasts. She was such an amazing cook. She made these biscuits that I still believe floated off the pan. And some breakfasts, there'd be fried chicken, which is kind of unheard of today. But these big, heavy breakfasts. And in retrospect, we needed it because we did a day of work. Um, after breakfast, uh, if, it, if the melons were grown, Ronnie and I would go out into the field and we'd collect a couple of melons and bring them back to the house. And I would roll them under Big Mama's bed where it was nice and cool. And those would be something we'd have late in the day after dinner. So really fun memories for me. You mentioned that every child in America should have this experience of at least some time spent on a working farm. So 
what does that farm therefore represent for you while you want others to have that experience? With every child having the opportunity to work on a farm, it does a few things. Uh, first of all, because I live in a city, I'm aware that there are a lot of city kids that have never left town. They haven't gone out into the country. They haven't had the pleasure of fishing or swimming in a real river or a lake. Um, they have no concept of where their food comes from other than a grocery store. And they've never been around wild animals um, <clears throat> or farm animals, forgive me. So the work that you do on a working farm, I think, helps you understand how family has to work together. It helps you appreciate what goes into putting food on the table. And it gives you a sense of purpose, um, a sense of accomplishment, really. Now, it's interesting that, understandably, you have this understanding of the farm. And, and also, I guess, this, the farm also gives a sense of cycles of life and all of that kind of thing, too. What period of time is it that you're going, you're spending your summers on the farm? I started going to Mississippi in the 50s. And it was a thousand miles from Milwaukee to Macomb. You're talking about the Jim Crow 50s. Yeah. Was your farm, your family's farm, a commercial farm or a family farm uh, for survival strictly? Oh, it was very much a family farm. Some of the crops were sold. Uh, my uncle grew a lot of corn. Um, in the very early days, I have memory of cotton. Um, I remember actually picking cotton once in my life, and I did not enjoy that. But there were a lot of beans, a lot of melons, um, lots of corn, and sugarcane. And I have memory also of um, some of the animals that were raised, lots of hogs, um, and the... One of the things my uncle did was coordinate with other farm neighbors in the slaughtering of their hogs and curing the meat in his smokehouse. Did you ever and, see an animal slaughtered? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. I don't want to dwell on that memory, but I was there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then they would hang the, um, the hogs in the smokehouse, and um, there were other things that would occasionally hang in the smokehouse that might have been shot while hunting. And the sugar cane was also interesting. Um, when the cane was harvested, my, my, my uncle would um, make syrup. And we had an old mule that my job was to lead the mule around in a circle. And the, the mule was connected to a post and the post was connected to a grinder. And my uncle stood in the middle and every time the post crossed over his head, he would bend down pick up more cane, and when the post cleared him, he'd stand up and feed that cane into the grinder. The juice would then be squeezed into a trough, and it would go down the trough into a pan that was heating, and that would eventually make syrup. Um, it would be strained and bottled and shared with other people in the, in the farm community. So my aunt's larder had lots of lots of cane syrup and um, lots of meat and there were potatoes in the in the root cellar i mean it was a real farm and the stories that i learned later when i became an adult and i went back down there i was i am still the family genealogist and as i was asking questions about my dad and my grandparents i learned stories about how the farm had um, survived during the depression um, the first thing I was told was no one ever went hungry. Um, as a matter of fact, people that came passing through that might not have been farmers, my Uncle Landy always had food, always had a plate of food for the folks that were hungry. And when uh, the Brown Bomber, Joe Lewis, would have big fight nights, many of the, the neighbor farmers would walk for miles to come to my Uncle Landy's house and they would sit on the lawn, sit on the grass outside, and my Uncle Landy would wheel this radio out to the front porch, 
and connect it to an old truck battery. And the folks would listen to the Joe Lewis fights. And for refreshments, my Aunt Ida would roast peanuts and serve cool well water. And they'd listen to the fight. And after Joe Lewis had won, they would uh, take their walk back down the gravel road to go home, concealing their joy because they didn't want to make the, uh, the white neighbors angry at their happiness because the brown bomber had won another fight. With my grandparents in Harlem at the time that your parents and grandparents are on the farm, I still today carry stories with me of the nights Joe Lewis won the fight. Yeah. And um, my grandfather told me about how they would have the windows open, and so they would hear over the rooftops like an arc of people cheering going from from <laughs> open window to open window to open window, all cheering Joe Lewis winning the fight. But just as you are giving us this portrait of the farm, the 50s, this life that you are speaking about, young people sharing today, is ironically the life that your parents fled. Yes, my mother, my mother was too young to be considered having fled. Um, her father was the one that fled Arkansas uh, after defending himself. And one of the uh, neighboring white sharecroppers, who was a very good person, came over and said, Jerry, you got to go right now. They're coming for you tonight. And um, my grandmother helped him pack a bag and with some food, and he jumped on a train. The train tracks went right through this little town of Tinsman, Arkansas. He jumped on the train and he came to Milwaukee and uh, he left the farm. And one year later to the day, um, my, my grandmother and her four children, including my mom, who was the youngest, they arrived in Milwaukee the day before my mother turned four years old. Did he For ever my, go back? My mother never went back, but I did. I was working in Arkansas not too long ago on a television project. I was down there for a couple of years, and I wanted to see the town my mother was born in. So I went to Tinsman, Arkansas, and had there not been a stop sign there, I would have missed it. I literally would have blown right through it. I think the population today is 50 people. It's still very, very small. Mm-hmm. Very few buildings there. And what had been a very active farming community, there are no family farms in that area right now. Just overgrown land, quite beautiful, quite lush, but you don't see the individual family farms that once were there. The young people have pretty much fled. Um, They've gone north to the big city of Little Rock um, or to even to Pine Bluff. But the real country folk, they're pretty much gone. That departure is, <laughs> if if one has a kind of a twisted perspective, it can be said, well, then that's why the Ku Klux Klan was right. Because that is what they were riding to prevent happening, which is people leaving the farm and having the farming way of life die off. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Three years ago, I went down there for a family reunion, a branch of my family I was not that close to, but I went and I stopped for gas in this little community about 40 miles south of Little Rock. And there were a couple of fellows in the park, in the, in the gas station, and I just struck up a conversation while the gas was going into my car. And I asked them, what was it like to live there? And they said it was okay. But one of them happened to point out that there was a Klan museum three blocks from where we were standing. And these were young black men, and they were just kind of shaking their heads, saying, don't believe it's as calm and pretty as it looks. And I thought, my goodness, this is 2014, and there's a Klan museum? Not even, not even 50 miles outside of Little Rock, Arkansas. That kind of shocked me. Why did your father leave Mississippi? 
my father's brother had been killed. He was shot in the woods by a group of men. And my father was just fed up. He had been a sharecropper. And there had been some other things going on with um, the county wanting black farmers to not grow certain things. And dad just dropped to his knees one day after his brother died and said, Lord, if you get me out of Mississippi, I swear I'll never put a hole in the ground again as long as I live. And shortly after that, he left and he never went back as a farmer. And we laughed about it uh, in later years when my mother would want to plant a garden in the backyard. And my dad said, nope, not me. So all he would do was cut the grass, but no more farming. Your family then is part of that great migration, as it's called, the exit of black families from the rural Jim Crow South to the North in pursuit of bedrock, in pursuit of justice, in pursuit of, of safety. Um, what do you think of today when people talk about going back to the land, the family farm, and look, some people look rather romantically at what farming is. Others look at it as what it is, a way of life and a source of income. How do you look at farming today? The people that I know that have talked about going back tend to be older, uh, and they look at it as a way to go back and, and live less expensively than they did in the Midwest or on the East Coast. They have no intention of becoming farmers, but they have a great appreciation for the sentiment that it was their people that owned this piece of property. There is a gentility in that community that they want to reconnect with. Um, they may grow a few things in a garden but they're not going to be on a tractor, um, very few of them, I would say, uh, growing anything other than some tomatoes and some collard greens and a few beans, perhaps. But they've been hanging on to the land in many cases, and they wanted to keep the land in the family. They may have sold off bits and pieces of it, but they kept a spot for a retirement of some sort. Does your family still own a plot? My dad let his land go many years ago rather than keep paying taxes on it. He had no belief at all that any of his children would ever move to Mississippi. So he said, and I know I'm not going back, so I'm going to let it go. But my cousins still own quite a bit of land. And I consider that the family farm since that is where I spent my summers as a child. And they don't grow anything. Uh, there is timber on the land, and they sell a little bit of timber, but largely the land sits idle. Could you just tell us what the sharecropper life was as your father knew it? My dad was averse to talking much about the details of being a sharecropper. He talked about some of the hardships. He said it was a living. I can tell you from things that my uncle said, which... I, I heard firsthand. It was a living. It was the way he put food on the table and took care of his family and not really talk about as a business. Um, I know that they sold off excess. He took excess corn into town and sold it somewhere. Uh, he sold some sugarcane, but there was always food. And I would go down a skinny city kid and I'd always come back a few pounds heavier with a bit of a southern twang. I do have one fond memory of the train rides home. After a summer in Mississippi, my favorite thing was going home because all of these farm folks, cousins and such, would bring food and we'd get on the train with this big cardboard box full of cake and fried chicken and potato salad and goodness knows what else. And it was just a fun ride because we ate all the way home. 
Let's hear it for shoeboxes and fried chicken and good times with the family. Good memories. Matt Mixon, co-producer of The Janice Adams Show on his father, his father's father, and the power of family and memory. And coming up... Neahit Greymorning, member of the Arapaho Nation, speaks to today's young. More on The Janice Adams Show after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show. Say what you mean and mean what you say, a familiar ode to the power of language and of character. So who are we and what do we lose of ourselves when the words we speak no longer mean what they were intended to say? What do we lose if we aren't who we are? Dr. Neahit Graymorning is a professor of anthropology and Native American studies at the University of Montana. A linguistic anthropologist, he's a member of the Arapaho Nation. I asked him to pronounce his name spelled N-E-Y-O-O-X-E-T-G-R-E-Y-M-O-R-N-I-N-G. Neahit, well, properly Neahit Graymorning. I'm hearing a double syllable in there. Is that where the two O's are? Um, yeah, the Arapaho is a tonal language, and so there's a rising and falling in the where the the O's are. So Nayachet, but most people just say Nayachet. Let me start there. In your pronunciation of your name, what are we losing when we don't? say your name correctly. And I think that's especially important in these times when we're looking at uh, some things that are going on politically. And then we say, well, who are we? And what do we lose if we're not who we are? Well, that's really um, an important question. And it's actually something I've been covering in my class in the past week and a half, culture is expressed through language. Um, and it's an area of social, uh, social linguistics, and that's language and society and how language moves throughout society. So when my name is not said correctly, it has no meaning. Uh, my name has, has meaning to it. And when you get to English, English names long ago those names had meaning as well but they've sort of been lost over the over the ages so when somebody says robert you know it's just sounds robert but when you say nayach it it means something specifically it actually means three different things specifically and uh, many indigenous languages speakers of the language in knowing what all three of those meanings could be can use that word um, to play with the speaker in certain ways or to to elevate the speaker. What are the three meanings? Well, when people ask me what does it mean, I tell them most often. The, the thing I tell them first off is caterpillar. But if I particularly don't like the person, I'll tell them it means the whirlwind. And they're getting in information about how I could be towards them okay. if they're on my wrong side. Okay. And the third meaning? It's that part in the back of the head where there's a, where the hair swirls. <laughs> okay. And um, which meaning will we go with today? Caterpillar, <laughs> I guess. Tell us about you. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? In in fact, I was introduced to you through New Paltz. Um, I'm an alum of. SUNY New Paltz. Tell us about yourself. Well, I am what's referred to as a grandparent child. I spent a lot of time um, being taken care of by grandparents or being with my grandparents. Um, so my father actually was um, a 
truck driver when I was quite young, um, and so he moved certain produce, and that meant he moved around, and we moved around a fair amount. Um, so I spent a lot of time with um, my grandparents in Oklahoma uh, while he was, you know, trying to establish some sort of footing, I guess economic footing. By the time I got to um, junior high school, I was moved from there to my my family had um, my father had and mother I guess both of them had established a home on uh, Long Island. So I went to middle school, uh, junior high school, and high school on Long Island. That's what got me to New Paltz. Um, so I for undergraduate is that for undergraduate yes and oh. then when I went when I um, graduated I returned back to Oklahoma and did my graduate work at the University of Oklahoma so that I could be back with family. So your BA what year? Um, Nineteen seventy three. Ah, I got you by a few. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you study at New Paltz? Um, well, originally I was going to be a psych major, but I was strongly influenced by a really wonderful um, anthropology teacher. So I switched to anthropology, and that's what I came out of New Paltz with an anthropology degree. And that's what I did my graduate work. I was one of the first people to get a doctorate that, a degree that focused on political anthropology. So I do a lot of analysis of how laws um, have impacted uh, often the, the political independence of indigenous people. You were explaining the pronunciation of your name and, the, uh, and what that connotes in terms of the understanding of your name in Arapaho. How many people actually speak Arapaho these days? Well, in my lifetime, when I was coming out of high school, entering college, on the reservation in Wyoming, the Wind River Reservation, there were about 3,800 Arapaho, and out of 3,800, close to 2,000 spoke the language. Now, there are almost 10,000 on the reservation, and less than 100 speak the language. That's what's really frightening. When I hear things like that, I think of it in a double thing. Obviously, the preservation of culture and all of that, but I've just done a project for young people on the Underground Railroad, expressing to them how the spirituals are actually codes and so forth. And I just think it's important, especially in these times, to have another language, a language with, in which you can communicate with the people you really need to communicate with. I was contacted by Homeland Security, and they wanted me to be a, a member of a group that was looking at... Um, centers of excellence against terrorism. So there were a lot of very important people in that room. And on the fourth day, I realized that culturally these people were doing something that they didn't understand um, as far as trying to understand the mind of the terrorist, I guess. And one of the things I said to them was that we all know about the Navajo code speakers. And one of the reasons why that worked is because there was a transmitter who was Navajo and spoke the language and a receiver. And I said, in Arapaho, uh, this will give you an example of where you're missing the point with this, all of this. In Arapaho, if I say Hanin Sena, that on the surface means I have a cold. But somebody on the other end, knowing what the situation is, would hear it as, he is afraid of me. Mm. And that could be a signal about when is the best time to strike an enemy when he's afraid of me. Um, so all those things are lost uh, yeah. in English because you don't have complete sentences that can mean more than one thing. Mm -hmm. which, is, which is why it's so important to have Arapaho and that people understand it and can carry it forward. Yeah. I just think of it on a self-preservation level. That's a mark of who we are as a people as an anthropologist, as a linguistic anthropologist, and now you're referring to the political anthropology. What does that tell us? Well, it has me looking closely at things um, that 
are of a political nature, um, things of legislation, acts, legal acts, laws, but also language. So one of the things about Trump's um, bid for presidency that I was that I found very interesting was, and I think people did not look at this careful enough, that the language that he used and the way he used language, anybody else that, that had done that in the past would have been heavily criticized and, and basically said, you can't be doing this. But the fact that he was getting away with it time and time again, he would say outrageous things that were offensive to different groups and wasn't really called on it. It was brought to people's attention. So the fact that he was getting away with that, to me, demonstrated that he was connecting with another group of people that were lying under the surface uh, of a lot of these these leaders, that, and they weren't paying enough attention to who he was connecting with. And I was telling people, you need to be careful about this because those people could rise up and decide to, to mobilize and get to the voting offices and bring this man into office. And that's exactly what I think happened. It seems to me that we're going to have to look at the meaning of language, period, as we go forward. What do the words mean? What is what is the weight of the words that we are saying? What are the codes? I have long felt uh, from my side of the fence that we needed, for example, to restate all things having to do with slavery. For example, I no longer refer to people as slaved. I refer to people as having been enslaved because something was done to them. I don't refer to people being born a slave because the universe does not make you a slave at birth. Someone else does that. You know, um, people will say, well, they hate me because I'm black. And I'll say, no, they hate you because you're hateful because they are hateful. So even those of us who may say we don't have Stockholm Syndrome have kind of still ingested some of it Yes. as we adapt the language. So I'm going to ask you something. The comment that you made to us explaining to us the language and, and your analysis of what's going on, how would you say that to me or to a person who was Arapaho, how would you say what you just said? You mean speaking in Arapaho? Yes. So we can hear it. <laughs> well, first I have to understand, I have to play back in my head what I've said, because the exact wording, what you're asking for is tricky. Um, the exact wording is not the same. What I'm specifically asking is, if I were a child in the Arapaho Nation and you wanted to tell me what I needed to know, how would you tell me? If I was living at a time, and you at a different time, and you asked that question, um, I would say something like, "Hey, bad ha in I'm not. Hey, bech, hadina hadin." So, essentially, that is, I want you to, to know or to understand um, roughly the, the importance of being a human being and living as a human being. Uh, and encoded in that, so it could be as simple as that, because encoded in that, are messages that have come long before that while the person was growing up, messages that have come through stories. Some cultures, they talk, they talk about stories as shooting one with an arrow. The stories help us to, to um, re... How is it referred to? The stories help us to um, re not reinvent, but sort of remake ourselves. And people misunderstand what that means. They think it means um, to be something other than you're, than you're not, but it actually means what you're moving towards is changing you, and you need to remake yourself back into who you're supposed to be. Mm. And so some, a sentence as simple as that um, brings someone back to those stories. It reminds them who they are 
as a, as an Arapaho person. So it doesn't take a lot of discourse or lecturing. After our taping, Dr. Gray Morning thought about what he'd like to say to young people. He sent us this message spoken in Arapaho. He thought about it, but he didn't understand it. He didn't understand it, but he didn't The land is ill. I believe when Indians lose their language, it will be bad for all people. I worry if we lose our language, we won't be able to think in an Indian way, in an upstanding way. Remember, our life is our language. If we lose our language, we will lose our ceremonies and ourselves. These things make us strong. Remember, be strong, live in a good way, and always protect the land. Know these things, and the land will be healthy. More with our guest, Dr. Neahet Gray Morning, after the break. The train is dusty, the road is a mighty rough, the good road awaiting, oh the day is not far off, oh we got trains, trails of trouble, and we got our roads, roads of a battle, hands of victory, we shall walk. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Dr. Neahet Graymorning, member of the Arapaho Nation. On the topic of language, identity, I asked how today's young Arapahos are faring, especially in these troubling times. Oh, goodness. Um, You can almost track this um, with the deviation from language, with the generations that have been losing language, we are seeing a rise in, in a cultural discord, a cultural um, confusion over identity. And so youth are taking on um, identity of other cultures and, and doing things that, they, that is not Arapaho in nature. Um, there are gang wars that are starting to happen. There's a lot of drug that's entering, drugs that are entering into um, into reservations, many reservations. So, in the past, when that kind of shift was beginning to happen, those children, those the youth would be would be brought into certain ceremonies, and they would be. It would almost be a one on well, it would be a one on one, so the youth would be brought into a certain ceremony, and there would be an elder who would lead them through that ceremony, and in that ceremony, they would be reconnected to who they were as a human being to be to understand um, to better understand how they were moving away from that and some of those ceremonies um, uh, are starting to to weaken because they're because the speakers are trying to do it through English because the people going through don't speak the language. Mm-hmm. So there's something lost. And it goes again back to to those stories and hearing those stories. I mean, I remember there are people that I know that would talk about those stories, and I know you know, many of those stories, and, and as my children do. Um, and that they're not happening the way that they happened in the past. And you used the word earlier, uh, encoded. Encoded in those stories are the very things that tell us what we need to know as far as how to be model citizens, um, how to do the correct thing. So oral societies didn't need to have those codes written down that you like you find in, in Americans, well, European, American European or uh, other societies where they've been encoded on paper. Um, the problem is, 
if you're not reading those papers and uh, you know this this whole expression ignorance is no excuse for the law well if you've never seen those laws and you've never been exposed to them then how can you be expected to live by them well you are in native societies um, you heard those stories growing up and those are the things that shaped you shaped your psyche shaped your being shaped your identity do you have children yes I do my firstborn is Lien. Uh, she's around 44, I believe. <laughs> I'll have to, have to think through this. I don't keep track of ages. Um, but uh, then my secondborn, my son, David, is my secondborn. He was born in 1981. Um, then my thirdborn, Amber Jean Hisinatha, um, she actually carries an Arapaho name on her birth certificate as well as my last born, Keith Talon, Chechnya, who gray morning. Amber is 26 and Keith is 24. What change have you noticed in your own parenting from the birth of the first to the birth of the youngest? Um, well, the biggest change is I grounded my last two a lot more in the language and culture than, than my first two. Um, but part of that is because um, my first two, uh, they were not, they didn't grow up with me. Um, so they grew up separate from me. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the, that. And that happened at a very young age with both of them. Have they been able to cover some of that lost ground since then? Um, my second born, David, uh, moved, moved to Missoula from Pennsylvania, and he's been here um, since 2009, I believe. Uh, and he's taken Arapaho with me, formally and informally, and he is trying to pass that on to his daughter. Did you grow up speaking Arapaho? I grew up um, bilingually. What are some of those iconic things that we may think of as being authentically one thing that actually are indigenously another? Well, there's lots of things. Um, I don't think people realize that uh, there's probably more than 50% of the states are native names. Ohio, for instance, Ohio name means beautiful river. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Massachusetts? Yeah, Massachusetts. Connecticut is, is, is yep, supposedly Connecticut. another, yes. The other thing um, with Thanksgiving is the, the it's interesting that, you know, people, uh, you, and you may be aware of this, that um, um, turkey seems to be the, the center, you know, centerpiece of a meal. Well, that was not supposed to happen. Um, originally, when that iconic meal was supposed to happen, the Native people brought in an eagle. Um, for the meal, and because the country was picking in an eagle as a symbol of the country, they had to find another bird. Interesting. I guess the eagles are grateful. <laughs> the, the, uh, the turkeys are not happy, but the eagles are probably very grateful for that. But on but on on another level, what then was the symbolism? If that's the case, that because the Europeans wanted to make the eagle the symbol, what did the eagle and the turkey already symbolize to the indigenous people? Well, the eagle, it varies from place to place. Many, A lot of people don't realize that and for a number of tribes, an eagle was part of a food source. Um, but people don't. So in the in um, American structure, the eagle that's that has become the symbol is a bald eagle. So that was the eagle that was brought. But it's the golden eagle that carries prominence among Native people. The golden eagle is an incredible bird. Um, it has the ability to fly. It has a special lens that can drop uh, drop over its eye that polarizes the sun. And so it can fly directly into the sun and still be able to see things. Wow. Um, and it's, the e- it's that eagle that um, people 
connect with as far as being a messenger between uh, Earth and the sky world. It carries prayers. Um, the eagle is seen as Nahuat Babayan, looks from a, looks afar, can can see things um, in great distances, and so um, part of that carries an idea of being able to see things yet to come. If, if, a, if a person is imbued with some spirit of the eagle. Uh, so it's the golden eagle that really carried prominence uh, and meaning for Native people, where the bald eagle, it was just another bird. <laughs> so mm. that's why it wound up on the table. <laughs> <laughs> In these last few minutes that we have with you, in the spirit of that golden eagle and the messages that it carries forward, I'm wondering about what it symbolically, realistically is telling us or can bring from the past to the future to tell us as we go through this political upheaval in the United States and, and uh, social and and daily life upheaval, too. It's not just as remote as politics as we know. Well, this may sound a little radical, um, but the indemnable spirit of a golden eagle is incredible. Um, Culturally, the individual was not a, a thing that was nurtured as far as you know, your individual rights. The individual played into the rights of the community so that the community was balanced and and um, healthy. And so, therefore, if you did something to, to upset that balance and health of the community, there are ways of bringing that back in balance. Um, and there, that could be a symbolic sacrifice or it could be something more more permanent uh, where you might have had to leave the community for a while. But there are always ways to to reintegrate you back in. But when we look at the spirit of Golden Eagle, um, ranchers would hunt the, gold, uh, the Golden Eagle back in the 70s. Um, and I remember hearing a story from a helicopter pilot who would be hired to hunt the Golden Eagle. And he just had the most incredible respect for this bird because he said the bird would maneuver in ways that no other bird could do. And he said he was taking out a rancher once who they had tired this bird out, and that's what they would do in the helicopter, chase after him until he got tired, and then the person would lean out the window and shoot the bird. Um, and he said this one time, they lean, they were after this golden eagle, and the just when the guy was getting ready to shoot, he just veered the helicopter off, and the, the farmer said, what did you do that for? And he said, the bird looked over its shoulder. And he said, so what is that supposed to mean? He said he was looking at where the where the helicopter was. And again, he said, well, what's that supposed to mean? And he says the golden eagle will make a half loop into the blades of a helicopter and bring it down. And so I guess the message is that you know, one, I can tie that into another message that my uncle would tell me. And, and he would, um, and I could tell Paul part of it in Arapaho. Um, he brought me out to an overhang uh, early in the morning when the sun was rising and, and we were standing over a pond and it was very still. And he said, um, um, he said, um, um, God, my brain is working in English now and I've got to slip into Arapaho. Um, God, um, the Akuta, oh God, God, I'm trying to think of his words now, exact words. It'll, all right, let me just continue because I know we're on a time schedule here. He told me to um, to pick up a rock, and he said, Gina Guti, Gina Guti Hichibe uh, Nietzsche. He said, hold the rock over the pond. Uh, uh, not Gina Guti, and let it go. Uh, Tell me what you, what you see. And so... I picked up the rock and I dropped it into this still pond and I told him that um, when the rock hit this, the water, it made circles move out across the water. And what he said to me next ties back into that whole thing about the eagle. 
He said, understand one thing, that nothing is so small that it's not capable of putting something much greater than itself in motion. He said, those waves will move out, those ripples, those circles will move out across the... They put this whole pond in motion, and they moved out across the surface of this pond and moved things along the very edges of this pond. So, in one sense, you know, this eagle symbolically, you know, has the capability had the has the capability of bringing down the very thing that that is threatening to destroy it, um, and it's making a sacrifice in doing that. And so, as individuals, we have the capacity to bring down the thing that is destroying the, the very the very essence of what we believe ourselves to be as a people. Uh, if we understand that, we have that capacity to do that. And in that metaphor, extraordinary story you've just told us, I think it's what I'm hearing from you. It's not just that it has the power to bring it down. It's that it brings it down because of what it holds up. Yes. Thank you so much. Today on the Janice Adams Show, two men, fathers on the legacies of their elders and their gifts of spirit to the future. Our thanks to our guests, Dr. Neahit Graymorning and to Matt Mixon. For more on today's show, please visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF, post-production, Jason Dole. The Janice Adams Show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what...